Ryan Williams, who's going to be preaching for us this morning, has been bringing us the Word of God. And let me just say, it's been a feast for the souls of our men. And so seriously, thanks for all who leveraged, who sacrificed um, to, to make this happen. I think it's been a great thing in the life of the Four Oaks men. Now, now next week we're going to be back in Romans, but, but, but Pastor Ryan is going to be preaching this morning. And as I mentioned to the men at the men's retreat, there, there's... Ryan mentioned, uh, sort of fulfills all three prerequisites for being a guest speaker. Number one, he has the accent, okay? So he is an Aussie, okay? He does a mean Brucey in Finding Nemo, and maybe he'll sneak that into the sermon somewhere. But he's an Aussie, which should, it doesn't really matter what he's saying, it's just the way he says it. Doesn't that sound so biblical? Um, it's so melodious. Anyway, you'll enjoy his accent. Two, he's culturally relevant. You'll see he's tatted up everywhere, so he's relevant and hip with the young people, and so um, that's always a good thing. But more than that, most importantly, Ryan knows how to handle the Word of God. And um, I've sat through this sermon one time already today, and you guys are in for a treat. It is um, God's going to bless your souls. Ryan is a pastor in Albuquerque, New Mexico. He's married to Natasha. They have two boys. Ryan's also pastored in um, the Seattle area, and um, he's given up his time and with his family, with his own church family, to be here with us, to lead our men, and to lead us um, this morning. And so as Ryan makes his way forward, let's welcome him and give him our appreciation for being here. Well, good day. How you guys doing? Uh, finally, uh, Four Oaks can have a pastor with a real southern accent uh, in the pulpit. Uh, if you've got your Bible, uh, head to Ecclesiastes chapter 3. We're going to be in verses 1 through 15 today. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, it'll be up on the screens for you. Um, uh, Paul, thank you for the introduction. Um, I am a pastor in, in Albuquerque, New Mexico. I pastor a church called City on a Hill Church. And so from City on a Hill Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico, bring you greetings and the Lord's grace to you. Um, I'm going to pray and we're going to jump on in. Let's do that. Lord, you're good, you're kind. Oh, you love us. How you love us. Father, we pray that today as we study your word, as the book of Ecclesiastes um, is at work uh, and your spirit empowers its words to, to challenge us and to grow us, to draw us nearer to Jesus, Lord, I pray that... Um, that we, your people, would have soft hearts, that we would hear what you have to say to us, that we would be transformed and moved by it. Lord, uh, be at work. Be at work. Help us. In Jesus' name, amen. So a little bit about me. Uh, I have a, have a massive extended family. They all still live in Australia. I'm the only one that has moved to another country. And um, my dad is one of six kids. Uh, my mom is one of eight kids. And um, growing up, uh, my mum's side of the family has been farming the same patch of land in South Australia since 1860. Generation to generation passed down through there. So they've got about 6,000 acres. They farm sheep for wool and a bunch of different crops. Uh, two of my uncles work on the farm. And I grew up there. I, I loved... Um, you know, being up there and going up every school holidays and seeing and running around and climbing up and down on the tractors and climbing up and down on hay bales and um, trying not to get bitten by poisonous snakes, those types of things that just as day in the life of being Australian uh, is, is trying not to get bitten by a poisonous snake. 
And so my family has farmed that patch of land for going on over 150 years. And again and again and again, every year, it's this repetitive thing that they do. They, they in the spring, will sow seed. And then in the winter, they pray for rain. And they tend to the crops. And they keep pests at bay and they, they fight against weeds. And, and they go through these motions. And then finally, after a whole year's worth of work in, in the summer, in December, yes, that's right, the seasons are upside down. In December, they, they harvest the crops from the fields. They go out and they get to bring in the, the grain, the wheat, the barley, the oats. They, they run through and they get them into silos so that the, the grain will be preserved and it will have a, a good price when it gets sold at market. My Uncle Richard and my Uncle Leon are the uncles that, that farm uh, still for us. And, and, and in December... It would be absolutely ridiculous for my Uncle Richard to tell my Uncle Leon, hey, you know what? I'm going to take some vacation. I want to go see the cricket in Adelaide, and I'm just going to go and take some vacation. That would be just absolutely insane. Why? Because it's harvest time. And at harvest time, it's all hands on deck. At harvest time, you're running as hard as you can. You're working as hard as you possibly can because the grain needs to be brought in from the field. There is a seasonality to farming life that many of us have lost an appreciation for because we're not really connected to the land. We're not really connected to the seasons, are we? Some of us uh, keep small gardens, and so you kind of get what I'm kind of talking about. But for many of us, we live not in a world that is dependent on seasons, but we live in a world where everything is available to us 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. You get a recipe. Man, I want to try this recipe. It used to be that you would have a recipe and it would maybe call for peaches. And if you got that recipe in the middle of winter, you couldn't make it because you couldn't get peaches. But today, you can go to the local grocery store and year-round, peaches will be on the shelf because of the global market, because of the ability to kind of bring produce in and out and to keep it fresh, we no longer have a connection to the seasons in which some things fruit and other things do not. Thanks to technological innovations and a global supply chain, we can get fruit and vegetables, any fruit, any vegetable, whenever and wherever we want it. And I think as a result, we're losing a lot of appreciation for God's good design for seasons. God has good design in his world. He has placed it in his world. There is a reason that, that we have winter and spring and summer and fall. God has designed his world to function in a certain way. And I think in the world, I'm not saying that it's bad that we have global supply chains, but I'm just saying that we are losing appreciation for the seasonality of life, not just in the creation, but also in our own lives. Also in the things that we see and experience and go through as people in the world. Friends, we live in an upside-down world. We live in a world that is marred and broken by sin. We live in a world that is not currently functioning how God designed it to, because the curse of sin sits upon all things. It sits upon us personally. It breaks us. It breaks us physically and spiritually, relationally and emotionally. It breaks the creation around us. 
This world is currently functioning. Yes, there is still God's design, but, but it's being pushed on and squished and mushed around by sin. So it doesn't function as it should. And in today's passage, we're going to look at God's design for the seasons. Everything in its time is the title of this message. Because God has designed his world to function in a certain way where everything has its time. And so if you've got your Bible, Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verses 1 through 15, I'm going to to invite you to do something we do at my church. I'm going to invite you all to stand as we honor the reading of God's Word this morning. Solomon writes, For everything there is a season, and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant, and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to cast away, a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is already has been. That which is to be already has been, and God seeks what has been driven away. That's the word of the Lord. You may be seated. This is uh, probably one of the more famous passages out of the book of Ecclesiastes. In fact, it inspired a 60s pop song by the birds. You guys know it? I'm not going to sing it, because that's just going to be terrible for everybody. But this, this passage in Ecclesiastes comes at a really interesting time in the book. This is wisdom literature. Eastern wisdom literature, and, and, and what Solomon has done throughout the book of Ecclesiastes in the first two chapters is that he has basically gone on, on a fact-finding mission to find, hey, is there anything that can fulfill the deepest longings of the soul of man? Is there anything in this world that can fulfill, fulfill our deepest longings? And Solomon, with, with kind of full awareness, has gone and he, he said, hey, man, could, could, could sex fill my deepest longings? Could power fill my deepest longings? Could money fill my deepest longings? Could knowledge fill my deepest longings? And he has kind of gone and done experiments to see if any of those things in excess can fill the deepest longings of his soul. And he turns at the end and says, it's not enough. He, in fact, calls it vanity, futility. 
The Hebrew word that he uses that shows up all through the book of Ecclesiastes is the word hebel. It can be translated as breath, emptiness. And so Solomon, rather than kind of wrapping up his his journey of discovery at the end of chapter 2 and just saying, well, okay, that didn't work out, now here's the real answer, actually kind of moves us now into into a, a, a study of God's good design, a study of how God has built his world to be. He's leading us and helping us begin to grapple with the realities of what it means to live in an upside-down world, what it means to live in God's world that God has put good design into but then has been broken by sin. I'm in the uh, last year of uh, finishing up uh, a degree in historical theology. And uh, interestingly, uh, I'm a full-time student, I'm pastoring a church full-time. Our church has just bought um, and is renovating a building um, in Albuquerque, and we have gone through this massive building project. We had a big capital campaign as well, and by God's grace, actually next Sunday will be our first Sunday in this building. My church has been around for 22 years, never owned its own facility, never worshipped in a permanent facility. By God's grace, next week, that will be the week we get to do that, but that has been crazy. It has been crazy. The Lord is kind to us, but man, it has been insane. I'm also a a husband. I'm a dad of a seven-year-old and a five-year-old kids, both boys. Um, Jack, my seven-year-old, has spina bifida, so he has some special needs. And um, that, and then there's like been this thing called a pandemic that's like just made the most simplest tasks incredibly difficult. As I look back over the last couple of years, kind of the culminating efforts of all of those things have have left me feeling like pretty tired and pretty exhausted. But I know that there are some finish lines coming up. There are some finish lines that are happening. See, I'm running in the red right now. You know, I'm pushing really hard. I gotta get this stuff done. And I know that, that there is actually no way that I could continue to run as hard as I am. I talked to my, my course advisor the other day and just kind of shared with him, I'm like, man, I'm pretty tired, I'm pretty exhausted. And, and if, if you ask him this question, he'll deny that he gave me this answer, but he basically told me, he's like, hey, bro, C's get degrees, man. He's like, why are you shooting for 100? 75 will do just fine. You want to know uh, what you call um, the medical student that had the lowest GPA and passed? Call him doctor. You want to know the highest? Doctor. She's like, man, just get it done. Just get it finished. See, we have built into us a reality, right? God has has made us creatures with limits. We we have very real limits that, that we have. God has put them on us. I mean, the reality, the most simplest reality is that like, most of you at like 1 a.m. are going to be sleeping. Why? Because you've got limits. God has built limits into his creatures, and, and, and I'm realizing that, hey, I have limits. I can run really hard for a season, but then i gotta, I got to step back, and i got to rest. I know that I can't continue to run at the pace that I'm running at. And so by God's grace, as I see these finish lines that are coming up, next week we're into the building. Hopefully at the end of the year I'm going to graduate, defend my thesis and kind of just just walk and be good to go. I know that those things are going to cause me to stop, take a deep breath, 
and recalibrate my life. I can't just jump straight back into something again. Just because I can run at 120% doesn't mean that I should. Because what will happen is that I'll burn out. I'll break down. Because I have limits. Because God put limits on me. God put limits on you. God has put limits into his creation for good reason. We can't be fruitful year round. It's not how it works. We can't always have good times. There are difficult times that will come. We are not going to, to be able to live completely, just, just happily, every single moment of every single day. Because good times get replaced by difficult times. And difficult times will be replaced by good times again. God has put seasons into his world, and God has put seasons into his creatures. I love this quote by Donald Spence Jones. He's a theologian who wrote a, um, a commentary on the book of Ecclesiastes. He says, he, Solomon, establishes this dictum by entering into details and showing the ordering of providence and the supremacy of God in all men's concerns, the most trivial as well as the most important. Solomon is inviting us in this passage into an appreciation of this reality. What Solomon is inviting us into is something that is very contrary to the world that we live in, a contrary to our 24-7, 365, everything available all the time. He's inviting us into, into an appreciation of the fact that sometimes it's good for us to not be able to get everything we want every single moment of every single day. He's inviting us to see that, hey, we are not sovereign. We're not in control. We're not able to make everything happen all the time, however we want. He's helping us appreciate and understand that life in a sin-filled world and life in a broken world is sometimes going to have incredibly difficult seasons. Seasons of suffering and pain and loss. Seasons of fear. Seasons where we don't know what's going on. Solomon is inviting us into this reality, both in the big picture and in the little picture. Both in the huge things and in the small realities of our life. Solomon is teaching us about God's sovereignty. He's teaching us that God is sovereign and that we are not. He's teaching us that God is the one who is in control of all things and that we are not. One of the um, first really, really difficult pastoral situations that I, I was ever a part of, I've been a pastor for about 10 years now, and early on, um, there were a couple of leaders in our church, and they were great folks, um, loved them dearly. And um, I got a call from Jesse, who was, who was one of the leaders, and he called me one night, it was about 8 o'clock at night, and he said, hey, um, Ezra passed away. And he and his wife, um, they were eight months pregnant with baby Ezra, and went in for a routine scan, and they couldn't detect a heartbeat, and Ezra had passed. And he said, hey, we're at, we're at this hospital. And I said, I'm on my way, man. And so I went down, and I spent a few hours with them that night, um, just praying for him, just caring for him, getting to hold baby Ezra. And the interesting thing about um, ministering 
to people in the midst of just indescribable pain is that I think the Lord, just in his kindness, sometimes gives ministers just a sense of peace in that time. He gives a firmness, not a coldness, but a, but a firmness to be uh, just a, a ministry of peace and presence to people who are in, in just indescribable grief. And if you've ever been with somebody and the Lord's done that, you know what I'm talking about. And so I spent a few hours with them and I got home at about midnight and uh, was exhausted and just, just crashed into bed and woke up the next morning and that's when it hit me. That's when all of just the questions began to come flowing into my head. Lord, what are you doing? Well, the, they would have been great parents. Ezra would have been so loved. He would have been so well cared for. He would have been discipled and raised in, in your word. And they would have cared for him and baptized him and just, just done everything they could. Just, just washed him in the word of God. He would have known you from an early age by your grace. Lord, what are you doing? If you've ever been to Western Washington, um, there's like two massive mountain ranges that kind of run uh, to the west and, and to the east. And on the west is the Olympic Mountains, and on, on the, the east is the Cascade Mountains. And they're snow-capped year-round. They're beautiful. They're spectacular. They're all volcanoes, I think. So one day they're going to all explode, and Seattle's going to be destroyed. But, but I remember driving in, and I, as I was driving into work uh, that next morning, I was driving in, and I'm, I'm just having this real, like, like, if you read the Psalms and you've ever been shocked at, like, how honest the psalmist is, I'm, like, having a Psalms moment with the Lord. Like, Lord, what are you doing? I don't get it. I don't understand it. I can't, I can't fathom what is going on here. And as I'm driving in, the sun is breaking over the Cascade Mountains. It's breaking over the, the snow-capped, beautiful Cascades. And I'm, I'm just moving down to work, and I'm just just shocked and just, just struggling. And the Lord, through the power of the Spirit, just impressed upon me this reality. And, and I'm not saying like God told me, but I, what I am saying is, is here's what I, what I began to understand. It felt like God was saying to me, I made the sun rise today. And I'm doing a million things that you cannot understand. Trust me. made the sun rise today, and I'm doing a million things that you cannot understand. Trust me. See, in the midst of all the upside downness, all of the brokenness in this world, all of the suffering and the pain and the difficulty, all of the things that don't make sense, all of the things that we look at and we're just like, God, what are you doing here? He's reminding us that through the seasons, through the sovereignty that he employs over his world, through the power that he has to make the sun rise and set on his time, that he is causing all things to work together for his purposes. He's inviting us to believe that. As the sun rises on cue and sets on cue, we know that God has established order in his world and that he is still on the throne. He is doing as he pleases for his glory and for the joy of his people, even when it doesn't make sense. So friends, I want to invite you right now uh, just, to, just to take some time and slow down. Just like ask the Holy Spirit to slow your mind, to slow your heart down a bit. I know that getting to church um, on a Sunday morning sometimes can be difficult. 
I don't know what your, your drive-in or your morning was like. Maybe you and your spouse got into a fight on the way in. Maybe they were driving too slow or too fast or, or weren't paying attention. I do know that if you have, if your parents and you brought young children here today, that getting them fed, watered, dressed, and somewhat, like, somewhat okay to show up into a public space, that takes some effort. I also know that the chances are peace did not describe your morning. So let's just slow down for a little bit. We're going to ask a question, and the question is this. What do the seasons teach us? I've got three answers for us, but we need to slow down enough to appreciate God's good design in his world to answer that question. We need to be in a place where, where we're not chaotic, where our minds aren't racing and, and they're not crazy and we can just stop and just be present with what the Lord has done in his world and is doing in his world to do that. So just take a second and just, just ask, Holy Spirit, just, just calm me down. Slow my mind, prepare my heart. So what do the seasons teach us? The first thing that the seasons teach us is this. They teach us that there is beauty in everything. There's beauty in everything. How many of you have flowers um, in your garden at your home? Most of you. Most of you. And if you don't, get some flowers. Beauty's good for you. Are they, like, currently in bloom? And just lovely? You'd be like, well, no, no, they're not, right? Like, they're not currently in bloom because it's still too early in the spring. We're, we're just coming out of winter. Um, they might have some buds on them. They might have some blooms starting to, to appear on them. But, but of course they're not, right? Because we wouldn't expect flowers to bloom in winter. We expect flowers to bloom in the spring. And so soon, very soon... Color and beauty will begin to show up everywhere around us. Soon, very soon, we will, we will see the beauty of the springtime flowers, but, but, but not right now. Right now, they're getting ready. Why? Because God has made everything beautiful in its time. Verse 11 of our text tells us that God has made everything beautiful in its time. We don't expect flowers to bloom in the winter. We don't expect them to be beautiful in the winter. We shouldn't because God has not designed them to do that. We live in a, in a very throwaway culture, in like a disposable culture. When things are no longer useful to us, when things are no longer beautiful, when things no longer tickle our fancy, we throw them away. My case is the picnic aisle at Costco. The picnic aisle at Costco. A whole aisle, eight pallets high in a warehouse, filled with disposable plates and cups and cutlery and all sorts of different things, all designed to be used once and thrown in the trash. Other places around the world don't have that, by the way. 
like the culture that we live in here in the United States, is okay with disposable. And it's not just about picnic utensils. In the culture here, um, one of the greatest things that I have noticed um, as an Aussie coming in, and I've lived here for almost 11 years now, um, is, is that the people also fall into this disposable category. When I um, first started working here, I would work on different projects with different people, and um, it was great. They were super friendly, really, really friendly, really, really engaging, really nice, and, and we'd work together, and I was like, man, this person's my friend. This is great. And then we'd complete the project, and the person would never talk to me ever again. And that was totally normal. Like, Americans are great at doing. You're great at getting stuff done. You really are. You want to get something done, ask an American how to get it done. They will get it done. And they'll be really friendly while you're working with them to get it done. But it's almost as if when the project ends, so does the relationship. People are seen as, as you know, well, we'll be friendly and we'll be good and we'll have a great time while we're getting stuff done together. But once that's done, what purpose do we have with one another? That's like a really hard thing. And I don't think most folks in the States get it. That it's really unhealthy. That real true relationship, real true friendship, real true deep life happens when we don't just spend time together getting things done and things are easy, but we spend time in relationship with one another through good times and bad times when we stick with one another through life as it comes and as it goes. That's where flourishing really happens in relationships. That's where life really happens in relationships. God sees that. God has designed that to be the way that relationships work. Beauty flourishes after the winter. Good comes after the bad. God's built that into his world. The early church father, Dionysus, says this. He says, Providence cares not only for the useful, but also for the seasonable and beautiful. Providence cares not only for the useful, but also for the seasonable and beautiful. And friends, God is inviting us into deeper joy. He's inviting us in, into deeper joy in him. He's inviting us into something greater by, by, by sharing with us the fact that, that not everything is good all the time. Not everything is always about being useful. Not everything is always about just getting it done in the most efficient way. God is inviting us into this belief that, that God has actually made everything beautiful in its time. The seasons teach us that God's design is not futile or foolish but there is beauty in everything if we just give it time. If we just trust him and believe and understand that he is at work in all things. Sometimes beauty is hidden. Sometimes beauty can't be seen. And what God is inviting us into through this passage is this belief that, that if we bear with one another, if we love one another and care for one another through good seasons and hard seasons, we will experience a depth of joy and life that we have not yet experienced. Some of you are in a tough season of marriage. 
And some of you, I'm sure, are thinking, man, it would be easier if I didn't have to deal with my spouse. What God is doing in this passage is he's inviting you to say, yeah, it's tough, but hang in there. Work at it. Continue to press into love and care for your spouse. Yeah, it's hard right now. It's hard to see and hard to understand and hard to make sense of what's going on. Everything feels so hard and so difficult, but there are good times coming. Parenting. If you're a parent of a teenager, they're not always going to be this way. <laughs> like, there is a day where they're going to, like, actually be thankful for you. Life. May maybe things are just hard in life. Maybe it's, it's, it's personal health. Maybe it's, 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 it's your vocation. Maybe it's something else. God is inviting you to hang in there. Because he has made everything beautiful in its time. It's not always going to be hard. The bad times will be replaced by good times. Winter will be replaced by spring. The seasons teach us that there is beauty in everything. And our second point is this, is that the seasons also teach us that there is eternity in our hearts. There is eternity in our hearts. Have you ever longed for the feeling of the sun on your face to feel warm? Most of you are like, no, I live in Tallahassee, Florida. <laughs> like, why? No, I don't at all. Well, when I lived in the Seattle area um, four years ago, and I like went back and researched this four years ago, they had um, the longest stretch of time where the sun didn't come out for more than two hours. On record. It was six months. For six months, the sun did not come out for more than two hours. I grew up in Australia, where like the sun doesn't go away for more than two hours, for like nine months of the year. It was rainy. It was miserable. It was depressing. I got diagnosed with this thing called seasonal affective disorder. Uh, basically, when your, your skin like, gets sunshine, it creates vitamin D. And vitamin D is like a, a happy vitamin that like, actually controls some, like, some chemicals in your brain. And my doctor like, did, did the, the test. And like, the, average, the average amount of vitamin D is like 200-something or others. And as you can tell, I'm a doctor. Um, <laughs> and, and I had 11 of them. And he was like, I'm going to give you a shot of vitamin D. And I was just depressed and mopey and sad. In fact, like, like it's no mistake that like grunge music came out of Seattle. <laughs> like, everyone is grumpy and sad and cynical at everything all the time. And that year, uh, in February, my, my family and I uh, went back to Australia to visit family. And... Um, after uh, we got to Adelaide, um, after about 24 hours of travel, um, at that point, we'd been on a 14-hour plane ride with a three-year-old and a one-year-old, which is as absolutely as fun as it sounds. 100% as fun as it sounds. Kids love long plane rides. Um, we get there, and we go through customs, 
hug my folks, hug my mom and dad, and, and we're so excited to be there. And, and in Australia, the seasons are opposite, right? So it's winter here, but it's summer there. And, and, and as we, we get out of the airport, um, I'm, I'm pushing the, the suitcases, and, and it's almost like there's this shadow. And then as I stepped out into the sun, it was 90 degrees, I remember it, and I stood there. And I felt warm for the first time in six months. It was glorious. It was glorious. It was so good. And I know that sometimes we're in seasons of life that feel like the six months of rain and no sunshine. Sometimes I know that those seasons drag on and we're always wondering, like, when will I feel the warmth of joy again? When will it come? Friends, I'm telling you, it'll come. I'm telling you that, that even in all of the upside-downness and the brokenness and the difficulty, that should cause us to long for the feeling of the, of the sun on our face, face the, the, the feeling of warmth and kindness and a desire for no more suffering, no more pain. I think we all long for that. I think each and every one of us longs for a world that is not broken anymore, that relationships aren't hard anymore. We long for all of these things. We desire them. We long for a thing that we have never truly experienced, but we know that we're built for it. We all know that, that cancer is not good. We all know that death is not the way that it should be. We all know that conflict is, is not how it should be. We all know that, that we are broken and we don't do things the way that we should, should do them. We all know that, that something's not right. Each and every one of us longs for something that we have never experienced. The Bible helps us understand what's going on there. It tells us that we were created by a perfect God. It tells us that we were created to live in relationships that flourish, that flourish with God first and foremost and one another and the creation. We see that in the, in the creation account, all things work together as they should. God's design works perfectly. Things function well. And then we see sin come into the world. And that stuff gets broken and relationships become hard and jealousy rises up and, and difficulty becomes the norm. But each and every one of us knows that we are designed for a world where that is not the case. We're designed for Eden. We're designed for a place that is not broken by sin. I love what Zach Eswin says. He says, our souls instinctively yearn for a purposed life without end under this time-chained sun. Our souls instinctively yearn for a purpose life without end under this time-changed sun. I'm about to break some hearts. C.S. Lewis has this quote where he's like, if we long for a world that, that, that we can't experience, then we must believe that we were created for another world. No! God built us for this world. He built us for this place. The Bible is abundantly clear that we are made for this world. God made his humans out of dirt and put them on dirt to live on dirt. We're built for this. And the Bible clearly teaches us 
that were built for this world, but sin is that which makes it difficult. Sin makes life here hard. We are built for a sinless world, and we live in a sin-filled world. And so the longing of our heart is to live in a place that doesn't have the effects of sin anymore. That's our hope. We long for eternity in the world that God has made for us with God without sin. The Bible is a story of God bringing that to completion. The Bible is the story of God doing just that very thing, answering the longing of the hearts of his people to be with him in his world without sin. And that's why the seasons teach us that, yeah, there is beauty in everything, there is eternity in our hearts, but finally, there is longing until the coming of the king. There is longing in us until the coming of the king. The scripture is a story of God, God seeking the lost, God seeking the broken in his sin-cursed world. From the time that sin enters into the world, God is at work to restore. God is at work to redeem. God is at work seeking out that which is broken. When Adam and Eve rebel against God, when they sin, and sin enters into God's perfect creation, what is the first thing that God says to Adam and Eve? He says this, where are you? Where are you? Like God knows where they are. He's omniscient. What is he doing? He's seeking the broken. He's seeking the lost. He's seeking that which sin has driven away. He is seeking out after those whom he loves. And from that moment on, from that very first words that God spoke into a sin-broken world, where are you? God continues to pursue people, people like you and people like me. He continues to pursue those who are broken by sin. Why? Because he loves them. He's a pursuing and a seeking God. And the whole narrative of Scripture is God coming after his people with an unbreakable, unbendable, ferocious, and furious love that says, I'm coming to find you in your sin. I'm seeking you. I'm finding you to save and to restore. And in our text today, Solomon is reflecting on that. He's reflecting on the fact that God has built a world for his people to live in. He's reflecting on the fact that sin has made it hard and difficult and things are painful at times and that even in all of the futility, all of the vanity, all of the meaninglessness, all of the hebel, God's still at work seeking and saving the lost. He tells us in verse 15, God seeks what has been driven away. God seeks what has been driven away. He seeks to bring it back to himself. And there are these beautiful promises all through Scripture that God is going to seek and find and restore that which the sin has taken away. 
All of these beautiful promises that we see, that God is, is going to restore his people back into a world where sin is no longer the dominant reality. He's going to restore them back to, to a place of flourishing and a place of shalom. He's going to bring his people with him back into relationship with him and with one another in the world that they inhabit, and it's going to be beautiful again. I love this passage in Joel, which is a promise of God. Joel 2, 24 and 25 says this, the threshing floors shall be full of grain, the vats shall overflow with wine and oil. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten. What a beautiful promise that is. That all of, of the Hebel, all of the upside downness, all of the vanity, all of the suffering, all of the pain, all of the loss, God will restore to his people in his kingdom all that the locust has eaten, all that sin has taken. That is the beautiful promise of God. That is the promise of what Jesus is doing in his world. That is what God is here to do. He's here to restore a people to himself because he loves them, because he loves them. Loves him so much that he himself would take on flesh. That Jesus Christ, the second member of the Trinity, would, would incarnate, come into a broken and, and futile world filled with vanity, filled with meaninglessness, filled with hell, filled with sin, and that he would live a perfect life. And we know that the wages of sin is death. And Jesus, the sinless Savior, ultimately would willingly go to a cross after living a perfect, sin-free life, and that he would go to the cross and he would pay the price for the curse of sin. He would take it upon himself, that the only one who sin had no claim upon, he lays down his life as a substitute, as an atonement for our sin and for the sins of the world. Jesus takes the curse of sin upon his shoulders and he goes to the cross and as he suffers and as he dies, he pays the price for sin. He breaks the back of the curse. He breaks the neck of the serpent. And he leads his people to new life in him. He goes into the grave. But because sin had no claim on him, three days later, he rises in victory over Satan, over sin, over death, over the curse. He holds the keys to death and hell in his hands. And now he reigns and rules from on high, the sovereign God drawing to himself a people from every end of the earth, from every tribe and tongue and nation, gathering a people to himself so that they will be his people and they will experience some of his restoration, some of his redemption, some of his beautiful love, and that they will be agents where they bring shalom wherever they are, that they will push back the curse. And even though we still experience pain and suffering and death Right now, he has a promise that there is coming a day. There will be a day where he will make all things new again. And brothers and sisters, we wait for that day in hope. We stand right now, even though we experience pain and difficulty and darkness, we know that there is coming a day where all things will be made new again. The winter of sin will be replaced with the spring of new life. The winter of darkness will be replaced with the spring of the light of the Lord Jesus Christ. John records this coming day in Revelation 21, verses 1 through 5, tell us that he saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw a new city 
So the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. It's in this hope of this coming day we stand. But now we wait. We stand in hope, but we wait. We wait in the old, in expectation of the new. We wait in sorrow, in expectation of the coming joy. We wait in the darkness, in expectation of the dawn. We wait in wounds, in expectation of healing. We wait in injustice, in expectation of justice. We wait in loss, in expectation of being found. We wait in chaos, in expectation of order. We wait in loneliness, in expectation of true embrace. We wait while war rages in expectation of true peace. We wait in lies in expectation of truth. We wait in distance in expectation of closeness. We wait in death in expectation of new life because we wait in hope. Because we have a living hope. We have a living hope and his name is Jesus. And he has conquered death. And he has conquered sin. And he has conquered chaos. And he has conquered the curse. And he is coming again to his people. And when he comes again to his people, he will make all things new again. We have hope that Jesus is coming. And that Jesus brings beauty from ashes. So friends, bring the deepest longings of your heart to him today. Bring the deepest, darkest longings, that the pain and the suffering and the challenges and the difficulty, bring them to Jesus in hope. Wait in hope, knowing that he knows what it is to feel darkness and pain. He knows what it is to feel difficulty. He knows what it is. He is near to you in your sufferings. He is near to you in your difficulty. He is near to you in your pain. So bring them to Jesus. Bring these things to Jesus that so weigh you down. Bring them to him. He is with you in them. And bring them to him in hope of that beautiful day that is to come. Wait patiently in that day that is to come. He makes everything beautiful in its time. Let's pray.